0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. The current sermon series is entitled Dear God. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Francis Thompson is probably not a man that you've heard much about. He was born into an upper-class family in 19th-century Great Britain. He attended a Catholic school as a young boy, thinking he might pursue the priesthood. But these aspirations evaporated when his, fe- his health began to fail him at a young age. His father was a doctor and encouraged him to enter medical school. But deep in his heart, Francis knew that a career in medicine wasn't for him either. Instead, he sensed an inner voice calling him towards a life in literature. After unsuccessful attempts as a bookseller and then in the shoe business, Francis Thompson ended up homeless on the streets of London, running from God, and addicted to laudanum, which is a, I think, I hope I said that right, it's an, it's an addictive concoction of alcohol and opiates that was prescribed by doctors back in the Victorian era to treat pain and all sorts of issues. Thompson then failed to even take his own life while living on the streets, and shortly after that time, a prostitute took him in, helped him get back on his feet. Shortly after that, he sent off some manuscripts of a few poems that he had written to a Catholic literary magazine. In his correspondence, he apologized to the uh, editor for the, quote, soiled state of the manuscripts because he had written them while living on the streets. Seeing the great potential in Thompson's writing, the editor had compassion on his poor living conditions and took him in and got him into a monastery so he could get cured of his health issues and off of the addiction to opiates. Thompson's famous, most famous work is a 182 line poem called The Hound of Heaven. When it was published, it riveted so many readers that it inspired the next generation of writers that many of us have heard of. Men like J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton have all cited Thompson as being a significant influence on them in their style of writing. The Hound of Heaven describes what it was like to be a wayward sinner on the run from God while a relentless God also pursued him. I won't read the poem because it's quite long and it's Victorian English is difficult to understand. However, what does come through the poem after I read it a few times, is he was tormented as a soul, Thompson was, but he was also pursued and he uses this unique turn of phrase, quote, with an unhurrying chase, unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, and majestic instancy. He says that's how God pursued him. Like a predator, just out of sight, but not out of earshot. The sin-addicted Thompson says he could hear the Lord's persistent footsteps pounding the pavement behind him for years. At the end of the poem, Thompson concludes that he had spent his life running from the very person that he should have been seeking, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, millennia earlier, David had a similar experience. He was hounded and haunted, excuse me, by the Hound of Heaven, and he writes about it in Psalm 32. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 32, and we're going to continue our series called Dear God. In the book of Psalms. If you forgot your Bible, please raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word so you can follow along. We have plenty to go around. I also want to encourage you to take out the sermon note insert that's in the worship folder you received when you came in. So you can follow along with me. There's an outline there. I want to encourage you to fill in the blanks, the answers We'll, well, excuse me, it's not a quiz, but uh, the blanks will be completed for you on the screen behind me. And uh, if anything, I hope that the outline gives you hope that there is an end to the message coming eventually. So, uh, for those of you that are visiting today, I want to bring you up to speed on what we've been learning as a church in the book of Psalms. Uh, it is essentially, the book of Psalms is a collection of worship hits for Hebrew worship services. It's broken down into five volumes, or volumes, I struggle to say that word and get made fun of it for it in my home. But um, uh, in fact, the title of the Psalms in the original language literally can be translated book of praises. This series is focusing on book one of the Psalms where I'm working my way through the first 40 and just selecting key ones out that we can look at together and study But another thing that's interesting about book one of the Psalms is that it's also David's prayer journal where he records passionate, intimate prayers as he struggles in his walk with the Lord, as he wrestles with a God that he's waiting on to come through, as he's being surrounded by enemies and going through all sorts of trials and seasons in his walk. And he writes it for us here in book one of the Psalms. We have a theme verse that I've been encouraging our church to memorize and it's Psalm 34 verse 4. It'll be on the screen behind me and it's also on the handout that you receive in your worship folder. I want to encourage you to say it out loud with me from the ESV translation. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Now, Psalm 34, verse 4, talks about the how and the why David sought the Lord. Ironically, in verse excuse me, in chapter 32 that we're going to be looking at today, uh, what we see uh, David talking about is how the Lord seeks us. So, so in Psalm 34, David is the seeker, but in Psalm 32, God is the seeker. And more specifically, it vividly describes David's need. And our need for forgiveness. And that leads us to our big idea for today. I like to give a big idea at the beginning of each message. It's the sermon in a sentence. So that if you remember anything when you go home today, hopefully this will stick in your, in your mind. And it's this. Our greatest need and blessing is to be Forgiven. In other words, there are a lot of things that we can ask the Lord for, and hope for, and strive for in life. But when you boil it all down, our greatest need and greatest blessing is to be forgiven. Now, uh, it's widely accepted that Psalm 32 was uh, is a sequel to Psalm 51. I'm going to give you a little bit of background here so that you can understand the context in which David was writing this prayer in Psalm 32. Um, In Psalm 51, David pleads with the Lord to forgive him after his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah. You might remember the story. It's in 2 Samuel where David the king sees a woman that he wants, so he takes the woman, has her husband killed, and then spends a year trying to cover up his sin. The story reads like a Hollywood movie or a a soap opera that you would see on television. But David, as the king, refuses to admit his sins and then tries to cover them up for a year. That is, until the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to confront him. Enter then Psalm 51 in which the fallen king pleads for the Lord to forgive him and to restore him. And then he promises to teach God's people everything that he learned from his fall. Enter then Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is David keeping his promise to teach God's people what he learned from his moral failure. And at the beginning of this series, I explained that scholars typically categorized these psalms into one of six categories. Well, Psalm 32 is a combination of thanksgiving and wisdom psalms. It it has both in it. David is thanking God for his mercy and grace, and he's also providing a little teaching and wisdom in it. So this would be categorized as both a thanksgiving and a wisdom psalm. Now... This entry in the Psalter is also unique in verse 32 because it is one of seven penitential psalms. Penitential psalms are psalms in which a prayer of repentance is expressed. There are six other penitential psalms. I have them on the screen behind me. Psalm 6, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Why am I sharing this with you? Well, Because all of us are prone to sin, or as the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. These penitential psalms can be a great resource when you are knowing that you need to pray and ask the Lord to forgive you, but maybe without words. You can turn to one of these psalms as I have before, and you can use it as a guide to pour your heart out to God and to be reconciled with him. A couple key words I want to define for you before we dive into Psalm 32. You'll notice in your Bible, most Bibles have this, right up by the chapter number underneath the title by David's name is the Hebrew word maskil. Many Bibles have this as in the superscription. It's a, it's a word that means to be wise or to instruct. Now, although the purpose of this word has baffled scholars for decades, one leading theory is that David uh, wrote this down, meaning that this psalm would be filled with teaching and wisdom. He would instruct and he would provide wisdom in this psalm. Maschil also shows up at the beginning of 12 other psalms besides this one. Another key word I want to point out to you is the word selah. You might notice it in your Bible after verse 4. And then also after verse 5 and 7, Selah. Selah appears 71 times throughout the book of Psalms, the entire book of Psalms. It, was, uh, it means literally to lift up or to elevate. It's believed that this word Selah was most likely a cue for worshipers to lift up their voices at this point in the song. Psalm 32 answers questions such as, is sin worth it? And it also answers the question, how do I get right with God when I have fallen away from Him, when I have rebelled against Him? And so, look with me if you would at the text in verses 1 and 2. David said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here's point number one on your outline, the first truth that's stated here, and that is, to be forgiven is a blessing. Now, I know that sounds trite or maybe simple, but there's a little bit more to this than meets the eye. First of all, the word blessed in the Hebrew text is a unique word. It means happiness, but it means happiness not in the way that we Americans would think of. it. It's a special Old Testament word that's often used as an interjection. Like, oh, how happy is the person that has this. The word's also used in a special way because it describes a happiness or a blessedness that can come only from the Lord. It's something the Lord bestows on people. So it's not a happiness that man can achieve on his own by getting everything he wants in his life. Well, who gets this happiness? Well, David says, the one who's been forgiven. He then goes to list why we need to be forgiven. So here's A, B, and C on your outline. We need God's forgiveness because, letter A, because of our transgressions. Our transgressions, he uses that term in the ESV in verse 1. The word in the original language refers to all the times we intentionally rebelled against God. Literally, it means to cross the line. As though God draws a line in the sense says, don't go any further than this. You can be angry, but don't lose your cool. There's a line right there. You can have alcohol, but don't get drunk. There's a line right there. It refers to all the times that we just blow past the boundary that God sets. And show no regard. Here's letter B. Another facet of sin is sin itself. Um, the word in the, in verse one is the Hebrew word kata, and it means uh, an an act that misses the mark or falls short of God's expressed or revealed will. It means to fail to uh, attain an ideal. This includes sins of commission and, you probably have heard, omission. Or as one little boy said in his Sunday school class, sins of commission are the sins we commit, and the sins of omission are those that we meant to commit but forgot to. (laughs) Next, letter C, there's iniquity. David references iniquity. This This comes from the Hebrew word that means to be crooked or twisted, guilty or perverse. It refers to the corrupt character or inherited sin nature that we all received when we were born that makes us crave independence from God. Now David isn't listing these three different types of sin here in verses 1 and 2. No, he's actually describing three facets of sin or I think he's trying to say there is no part of our mind, body, and soul, and lives that hasn't been touched by sin. Next, the psalmist lists three verbs to express the permanence of forgiveness. Through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we can have forgiveness. And that is a huge blessing. Here's letter D. It's a blessing because it lifts our burden. Forgiveness lifts our burden. That's what the Hebrew word for forgiven means in verse 1. It paints a word picture of taking a a 100-pound backpack off of a hiker that's been climbing a mountain all day. You just feel the weight that's been lifted off of you, or better yet, since we have some students here today, think of it as finals week is done, and you just have the pressure removed. Like, oh, it's like I can breathe again. That's that's what the word means here for forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Here's letter E. Another uh, thing that God is willing to do when he forgives us is he covers our sin. He covers our sin. David says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. The word in the original language means to conceal or to hide. It refers to how the Lord removes our sin from his sight like one might Sweep dirt under a rug. It's describing how David, or excuse me, how the Lord, uh, when he deals with our sin and forgives our sin because we've repented of it through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord doesn't allow that sin to hinder our relationship with him moving forward. He doesn't bring it up again and again, like, oh, remember that one time when you did this? Yeah. He doesn't forgive like that. No, when the Lord forgives, It's out of sight, out of mind for him. Next letter F, he cancels our debt. David says in verse two, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This third Hebrew word that David uses to describe the Lord's forgiveness is an accounting term. uh, the ESV says count, and I think NIV says um, whose sin the Lord does not count against him. It's an accounting term. It's a bookkeeping term. It, it means to charge or to put, someone, put something on someone's account or to add to their record. But the Lord doesn't do that when we repent of our sin and we trust him. And we, we put our faith in Christ alone for our salvation. So, thus it's referring to how the Lord removes the debt that we racked up against him when we sin, so that our relationship with him isn't hindered moving forward. Now, some people struggle with well, if why why is the Lord like being so picky, man? How come how come he's like can't get over it, man? Like I'm, nobody's perfect. Well, let me give you another way to think about this. We should be thankful that the Lord even allows us to accrue a debt. Because sin wouldn't be so attractive if the wages had to be paid immediately. You sin, you die. That's what's supposed to happen in God's economy. But because he's gracious and he's loving And he's patient with us. He allows us to accrue debt like charges on a credit card. And then is willing to waive that debt when someone repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. So, applications. I like to give applications here at Vanguard so that we can be doers of the word, not just hearers. And so I try to share one or two Practical applications of, well, what do we do with this now that we've read this? And so I have two quick ones for you uh, here under number one. The first is, um, if you haven't done so already, trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can do so by praying a simple prayer that simply admits that, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I, I believe you died on the cross for my sin and were resurrected three days later. Please come into my life, take control. I want to follow you with my whole heart. A simple prayer like that, like I prayed 25 years ago, will change your life forever. You'll have peace with God and forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. It's so many other great things. If you have questions about how to do that or questions about how to start a personal relationship with the Lord, I'd love to talk to you after this service. Here's a second application. For those of you that do know Christ as your Savior, remember the blessing of forgiveness. It's easy to forget. For those of us that do know Christ, these verses here, I think verses 1 and 2, remind us that even when you're in dark days, even when God isn't doing what you want him to do, even when, say, those seasons of life, when change is scaring you or the lack of change is driving you crazy, you can thank the Lord that nothing has changed in heaven. You can thank him for forgiving you for your iniquity, for your sin, and for your transgressions. So, our greatest need and blessing is to be forgiven. Look back at the text with me in verses 3 and 4. Let's see what David says next. He says then, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Here's number two on your outline. To be unrepentant is a burden. To be unrepentant is a burden. We cannot fully appreciate being forgiven until we look at and understand what it means to be unforgiven. And David describes it with great detail here. With high definition, uh, HD color here, with 4K resolution, David says, your hand was heavy upon me. Now, you probably have heard, as I have, in different places in the scriptures, sometimes... When God's hand is on someone, that's a good thing. There are times where it's a positive thing, but in this case, it's interesting to note, it's a negative. Your hand was heavy upon me. In contrast to the load lightening that forgiveness provides in verse one that I talked about, remember I talked about the backpack being removed, David says, when I was unrepentant and I was refusing to acknowledge my sin, your hand was heavy upon me. It was a weight that was crushing me, so much so that it felt like my bones were giving way. David was being haunted by the hound of heaven, and it made him a physical and emotional wreck. There's only one thing I can think of that might be worse than this, And that's living in sin and not feeling guilty about it at all. If this is you that I'm describing, then you probably fall into one of two categories. And these are not on your outline, I apologize, you'll have to write them in. I added these last night after the sermon handout notes went to print. You probably fall into one or two categories if you don't feel guilty about sin at all. It's sadly, there are some people like that. A, you may be a dead unbeliever. That sounds harsh, but I'm using biblical language there from Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul describes those that don't know Christ, that are separated from Christ by their sin, they are spiritually dead, or he uses the phrase, dead in their trespasses. It's imagery that Paul uses in Ephesians 2, meaning... Like a dead person, they are unresponsive to stimuli. Say if we had a corpse here and I was to poke the corpse, it wouldn't, it wouldn't move. That's how Paul describes those that don't know Christ. They are spiritually unresponsive to spiritual things. To the conviction of the Holy Spirit. To the preaching of the word. They don't, they're numb to it. The scriptures mince no words and hold no punches about those that choose sin instead of a relationship with Christ, or those that profess to know Christ, yet choose to live in sin. The scriptures play no games, and God doesn't either. That person will spend eternity in hell paying the price for their sin. Or if you're someone that enjoys sin but is not feeling guilty about it at all, you could be... Letter B, a desensitized believer. The more a believer resists the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, the more likely that person is to become numb to the Spirit's work. Charles Spurgeon explains it better than I could, so I'll let him speak here. Spurgeon, speaking on this topic of desensitization to sin, says this, quote, Beware of thinking lightly of sin. It is sadly true that even a Christian may grow, by degrees, so callous that the sin that once startled him does not alarm him in the least. By degrees, men get familiar with sin. The ear in which the cannon has been booming will not notice slight sounds. At first, a little sin startles us, but soon we say, is it not just a little sin? Sin, a little thing? It, it put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head and pierced his heart. It made him suffer anguish and bitterness and woe. Look upon all sin as that which crucified the Savior, and you will see it to be sinful beyond measure. So there is no little sin. So the application... I think we need to maintain a sensitivity to sin. The possibility of losing your sensitivity to sin should scare you to walk closely with the Lord. I'm not saying that should be your only motive. Your ultimate motive should be, I love you, Jesus. I understand what you did for me. You're worthy of my love and my life. I'm gonna give all myself to you because you gave all yourself to me. However, On days when that motivation isn't working, becoming desensitized to sin and not hearing from the Lord or having a distance between you and Him should motivate you to press in and walk closely with Him. Someone once said, Our sense of sin is in direct proportion to our nearness to God. The closer you are to the Lord, the more sensitive you will be to sin. The further you are away from him, the less sensitive you will be. Therefore, the key to maintaining and increasing your sensitivity to sin is a growing walk with the Lord through prayer and personal Bible study. So let me just ask you, how is your sensitivity to sin? Do you watch things on TV or on the internet and movies that... You wouldn't have watched years ago when you were a new believer and the Spirit was convicting you? Do you watch things that, if the old saying goes, Jesus was right there next to you by your side, you'd be ashamed to watch with him? Or songs, maybe, or other things that you're taking in to your mind and your soul? Let's look at what David did once he realized his own desensitivity to sin. It's in verses 5 through 7. David writes, But I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. And you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here's number three in your outline. The third truth that we glean from this passage. The chance to repent will soon pass. The chance to repent will soon pass. Notice how David says, Let everyone offer prayer to you at a time when it may be found. He's... He's saying the window of opportunity will not always be open for you to get right with the Lord. He's saying in these three or four verses, don't do what I did. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth crossing the line and giving in to sin and then denying it for a year and running from God and hardening my heart. It wasn't worth it. It cost me dearly. Get right with the Lord while you can. The Lord may have unwavering patience, but it is not unlimited. There are plenty of examples in the scriptures where the Lord's patience runs out one of the many faults of humans is that we like to procrastinate we procrastinate when we feel what we feel like overrides what we should be doing need i say homework for example or balancing the checkbook paying the bills but the problem with procrastination is that god has promised forgiveness for our repentance but he has not promised tomorrow to our procrastination. None of us has been promised tomorrow. There are two events that every one of us will face in our lives that should kill our procrastination. The first, of course, I'm referring to is the day that we die, of which none of us can forecast. And the other is the day that Jesus returns. Both events will put us before the Lord, giving an account for our lives. There is no going back. There is no, um, hang on a second, Lord, I wasn't quite ready for you to come back. Or, um, you know, I just realized I've got a few things I need to do, so I'll be right back. Just give me a week, a month, a year. I need to go tell some people I'm sorry. I need to clean up some things. There is no doing that. When the Lord calls your number, as they say, you're done. And you're you're standing before him giving an account for your life. If the Lord returns before that, you're done. There is no more procrastination. So the application is pretty simple. Don't procrastinate dealing with sin. Like a pop quiz that's been promised by your high school teacher. Your death and the imminent return of Christ should produce an urgency in your life that, that when it comes to dealing with sin. Like, i got to deal with this right now because I don't know if I'll be here tomorrow. i got to deal with this right now because I don't know if Jesus is coming back. He's gonna, the rapture could happen next week. I remember when I had high school teachers that would warn that a pop quiz was coming and it provided an extra motivation for me to keep up on my studies and my homework because I knew I had to be prepared. If I wasn't, I'd be caught off guard by the quiz, I'd get a bad grade, my mother would see it, I'd be grounded. And that really stunk. In a similar sense, the unbeliever's window of opportunity to receive Christ will eventually close, and for the Christ follower, the opportunity to earn eternal rewards and to please God with your life will come to an end when the Lord returns or when you die. So, the chance to repent will soon pass. Thus, we shouldn't procrastinate dealing with sin. Look at verses 8 through 11 as we wrap up David's prayer. There's a change I want you to notice. I call it a pivot in the text where the voice changes. David was speaking in the first seven verses. Now God is going to speak. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Verse 8, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. All you upright in heart. Here's the last point on your outline. Number four, the fruits of repentance lead to many blessings. The fruits of repentance lead to many blessings. There's a pivot here where God speaks instead of David. And the Lord basically says, because you've repented, I can now lead you. I couldn't lead you, David, when you were living in sin with a hard heart, denying what you had done with Bathsheba. So then, here's A and B on your outline. Verses 8 and 9 give us sort of two qualities of repentant believers, two fruits that are clearly evident. Letter A, repentant believers are leadable. They are leadable. The Lord says, I will instruct you and I will teach you the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. If you profess to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... The expected norm is that you would be teachable and leadable. This flies in the face of the false gospel that is spreading across our country nowadays that subtly teaches the Lord is here to serve me and to fulfill my dreams and to answer my prayers and to bless me with wealth and all sorts of good stuff. Nothing could be further from the truth. The way the Lord sees it is, you were made by me, you sinned against me, I have not wronged you, I'm willing to waive the death penalty for your sins so that you can be with me forever. Seems like the least I can expect is that you would follow me and serve me. That's how the Lord sees it. And that'll be good for you and I. The Lord never says anywhere in the scriptures, I'm here to serve you and do whatever you want. Nowhere. So repentant believers are leadable. It certainly begs the question, is the Lord leading your life or are you trying to lead the Lord? Here's the next quality of a repentant believer. They are loyal. They're loyal to the Lord, verse 9. They're loyal to the Savior that set them free from their sin. You heard me mention last week how Spurgeon, uh, some of you heard me say this, how Spurgeon describes our inherited sin nature like an ill-tempered horse that needs to be broken. We are apt to run away. Well, that's certainly the imagery that the Lord uses here in verse 9. He says, don't be like the horse or the mule that has no understanding don't be like them meaning you have a tendency to be like them you, you wander off and instead of staying by your master so he says you're like a wild Mustang that needs to be broken and trained So you stay by your master's side as opposed to being the mule or the horse that's constantly yanking and wanting to go your own direction. There's nothing good said about a horse that leads its master. The good horses, the ones that get used, the ones that are in shows and competitions, the ones that uh, have a good life are the ones that are submissive to their master, the ones that follow his lead. So the Lord says here, don't be like that. After all I've done for you, you should want to follow me. So the application, submit your will to the Lord. Your ability to submit your will to the Lord is ultimately rooted in what you believe about him and what you believe about yourself. If you believe God is good and has good plan for you and believe you are not God and cannot be any good apart from Christ then you will be able to submit to him. So the fruits of repentance lead to many blessings. Repentant believers are leadable. Repentant believers are loyal. And the application is at least one of the applications is to submit your will to the Lord. Several years ago, there was an East Coast newspaper that published a story that went like this. One evening, a woman was driving home when she noticed a large truck following her from behind. The truck was getting uncomfortably close to her bumper and so she stepped on the accelerator to gain some distance from the truck but as she sped up, The truck did too. The faster she drove, the faster the truck drove. She was beginning to get scared, so she exited the interstate, but the truck stayed with her. The woman then turned up a busy main street, hoping to lose this truck in its headlights that seemed so eerie at night. She hoped that maybe she could lose him in traffic but he stuck with her. In fact, the truck ran a red light and continued the chase. Reaching the point of panic, it was starting to feel like a horror movie. She suddenly turns her vehicle into a gas station and hysterically got out of the car and ran inside screaming for help. And while she was just about to get to the door of the gas station, the truck driver sprang out of his truck and ran towards her car and forcefully opens the back door. It was a four-door vehicle. And after he opens the back door, he pulls out a man that had been hiding in her back seat that she didn't know about. You see, from his high vantage point, the truck driver spotted a would-be rapist hiding behind the woman's back seat. The chase was not an effort to harm her, but To rescue her, to save her. Even at the cost of his own safety. The female driver had been running from the wrong man. Isn't that the way it is with us and the Lord? We run from God because we fear what he might do to us. But his plans for us are good, not for evil. To rescue us from hidden sins, not to harm us. And so I leave you with this question. Has the hound of heaven caught up to you yet? If not, I want to urge you to stop running. Because our greatest need and blessing is to be forgiven. Would you join me as we close in prayer? As we bow in prayer, the worship team comes to take the platform. I want to open up the front down here in case the Spirit might be prompting any of you to get right with the Lord. The worship team's going to play a song called Come to the Altar. It's an invitation song and It's certainly appropriate after a message text like this. I have found in my own life and in my years of ministry that when the Lord speaks to someone's heart and gets a hold of them in a service, if they don't mark it somehow by standing up or coming down front, they'll just go back into their old routine. And... Nothing changes. And so, if there are any of you here that are being chased by the hound of heaven and you're tired of running, we want to give you an opportunity to put an end to that today. So you're welcome to come down front during this prayer and our closing song. Father, I want to pray for those that might be here today or listening online that are being chased by you because they don't know your son, Jesus Christ. They've been born in rebellion and they've continued to live that way. But you're working and pursuing to try and woo them to yourself. Father, please, would you do whatever it takes. Use people, use circumstances to reveal Jesus to them so that they would repent and place their faith in Christ alone for salvation. Lord, I realize there may be believers here that have discovered that there's a sin pattern in their life that they haven't dealt with. They've been procrastinating and putting it off and putting it off to the point where they've become desensitized your spirit. I know, Lord, that the reasons could be varied. It could be a fear. They're afraid to deal with the sin. It could be they love the sin and it's a hard one to give up. It could be that they fear you and fear what you might do to them. Lord, please, would you somehow work so that reconciliation can take place and restoration Would you show folks that are in that situation that you love them, that you want to heal, you have better for them than their sin has for them. And finally, Lord, I pray that as a church you would work supernaturally through your spirit and through the word to increase our sensitivity to the spirit and to sin. And Lord, if there is any sin in this church that might be hindering or grieving the Spirit's work, would you expose it so we can deal with it? Because we want nothing, Lord, to stand in the way of you moving in and through our church. If there is anything that we love more than you, expose it, Lord, so that we can put you back on the throne of our hearts where you belong thank you Father for your patience with us thank you that you are willing to forgive and reconcile with us that you welcome us and invite us thank you Lord that you want to bless us that you want to lead us We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.